0: To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So the first thing here that I notice, especially if you read the rest of Philippians before this, is this is the first time he starts warning against something. Safe from what? Safe from who? Who or what is Paul warning against? And then we'll move on to verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul is warning against the Judaizers, which is a group of people that believe that in order to, be a, to become a Christian, one must first follow Jewish tradition. And we can see this because of the specific words he chooses here, really the specific insults. He's using uh, insulting language in order to catch their attention because this is the, you know they would, they would read his letter to the congregation and those people would be among the congregation at that time. So he's calling them out here using dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. So first, dogs. A common insult for non-Jewish people from Jewish people. That's what they would say. Because a dog was an unclean animal. And this insult would be used for reproach or humiliation. Uh, we see this a lot, I found, in 1 Kings. Dogs will eat the followers of whoever. Or dogs will eat this specific King or queen. It was an insult. It was not a good way to go. Certainly not a good way to go. Jesus even uses it when he is speaking to a Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, which I would like to read for you here. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat and the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So the rest of that passage is not necessarily important to this sermon, but I think it's important because that's a very interesting story. But even Jesus uses it. And interestingly, he's talking to a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites should not have existed at that point because the Israelites should have done what they, what they originally were tasked to do when they entered the, the land of Canaan. So I just think that's interesting. That's not really part of the sermon, but uh, Jesus, God, speaking to a Canaanite woman and Someone of great faith. I think it's very interesting. Anyway, let's get back to the dogs. So the main point here is role reversal. So the Jewish people once were the children. They were, supposed to, they were God's chosen people. And in a way, they still are. But now they are the enemies of God. Now they are the adversaries of God. Now they are the ones who are cast out because they, they rejected Jesus. Instead, they are taking the place of the outsider. Of the one, the dog begging for scraps. Uh, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, we see this as well, where the people of Israel or the people of God are brought inside, and the dogs are left on the outside. So Paul is using this to grab the attention and condemn the Judaizers. Second, evildoers. That one's pretty obvious. It's another role reversal. The Jewish people used to be the recipients of God's favor. They were the good people. They were, the, they were the, the good person in the Proverbs, but now they are the evildoers. Now they are God's enemies because they are trying to corrupt God's people. And then finally, those who mutilate the flesh. oh my notes are all out of order here. I should have double-checked this beforehand. Uh, so, or did I just miss a page? I don't know. Either way, those who mutilate the flesh. So this one is about circumcision, obviously. And what Paul does here is he takes something that is extremely important to the Jewish people and he turns it into something that is profane. This is forbidden. This practice, mutilating the flesh, is forbidden in Leviticus. It's not supposed to be done. So he takes them from the circumcision to the concision. That would be the phrasing. So something from, uh, it is is an outward sign of their devotion to God, their separateness from everybody else as God's chosen people, and he turns it into something pagan, something forbidden, something that is an evil practice that God certainly did not approve of. So we see now that uh, Paul is calling out the Judaizers. There's no one else he could be talking to because no one else would take offense at mutilating the flesh in the way that these people would. All right, so let's move on to the next set of verses here. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he goes from, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. So who is we? Well, it is those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And there is a common thread here in all of these things. And that thread is, it is something beyond ourselves. We worship by the Spirit of God, not by our own power. We glory not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in our own flesh, but in something much more powerful, something much greater. And in verse 4, let's see if I have that one. Nope, not that page. All right, so in verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So this will come up again later, but I want to point it out right now as a little bit of foreshadowing. So if someone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. There is a point of comparison here. You can have less confidence than I can have is what Paul is saying, which is kind of an interesting thing that will come up later that will make more sense. But I want to point it out. There is a point of comparison to be made here. And Paul is, not, Paul is setting himself up as a potential authority to the Judaizers. That was, that's what he is seeking to do in these next couple of verses. He is saying, I didn't flee Judaism because I was somehow uh, a loser at it. I didn't lose this one race, and then decide to go to this easier race where I don't have to worry about these things anymore. He's not, he's, not a, he's not someone who is fleeing a difficult task. He has more confidence than these other people should have. So let's look at what that actually means. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And I'll stop there. So each of these three things is significant. These three things offer his heritage. It's who he was. So first, circumcised on the eighth day, as was most appropriate by tradition. He was born to the people of Israel, not someone who later converted. And he could trace his lineage back to Benjamin, so he knew where he came from. And this itself is actually significant, the fact that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Benjamite. Does anyone know any other members of the tribe of Benjamin? So there are a couple important ones. Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin, and by extension Esther was of the tribe of Benjamin. Ehud who was a judge, who uh, one of my favorite stories as a young man when I was much younger, where he lost his sword inside the fat king. So, you know, young guy. That was a fun one. Um, And notably... If you remember what Paul's original name was, King Saul was a Benjamite. The tribe of Benjamin features prominently in a number of unflattering stories in the Old Testament as well. And it is almost wiped out at one point, down to 600 members because of some evil works that were done. But the tribe of Benjamin stories does not end there. And throughout biblical history, they are closely tied to the tribe of Judah often being one that sides with Judah as opposed to uh, northern Israel when the divide happens. Now, Judah, uh, Benjamin was given a blessing, so-called blessing, by Jacob and described as a ravenous wolf. And this carried through the tribe's history. They were mighty warriors, but their existence was marked with strife. That was kind of the deal with Benjamin. And Paul, who was then named Saul probably the most famous Benjamite that they would know, is true to his heritage, is true to this ravenous wolf mentality, and is true to his name. Paul has established his credentials here up to his adulthood. By birth, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And by name, he was destined for greatness in this culture. That's who he was. So continuing in verse 5, As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So now we go from who Paul was, who he was born as, his heritage, the things he had no control over, into his actions, who he became. And Paul took hold of his destiny with both hands. In this section, he shows his authority by describing who he became, on top of who he already was, a Pharisee. He knew the law inside and out. He was an authority within his community, specifically because of how much time and effort he had put into learning the religious law and traditions. Anyone who would say that they still followed Jewish law, like the Judaizers, would be forced to recognize his authority when it came to knowing and understanding the scriptures. He knew the law. Second, a persecutor of the church. Paul was a crusader, leading his people into battle against his enemies. He felt so strongly about his beliefs that he was willing to kill for them. He was extremely protective of the law and felt that the trespasses that the Christians were bringing against it were so egregious that they deserved punishment, even death. But not only did he feel strongly, his feelings led to decisive actions. By bringing up arguably the darkest part of Paul's past here, Paul is setting up himself just to show how much he loved the law. He did not merely know it. He was not just a Pharisee that sat along on the sidelines. His zeal was driven by his fanatical love for the things of God as he saw them. Of course, this love was misplaced and his actions were reprehensible. But it cannot be denied how strongly he felt about the law. And this must also be recognized by the Judaizers. Were they crusaders? Not so much. And finally, blameless. His description of who he became, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Once again, Paul shows himself to have been wholly devoted to the religious teachings of the time. Not only did he know the law and love the law, but he also lived the law. Many people over the centuries have used religion as a tool for their own gain or to oppress others. We see plenty of examples of this in the Bible, like Eli, the priest, and his sons. And we can certainly think of people in our modern age that use Christianity as a tool for political power, but not Paul. He was completely sincere in his belief that he was doing the right thing. He sought to be blameless under the law because he was a true believer. His final show of authority avoids potential accusations of hypocrisy from the Judaizers because he lived the law. So in these two sections, these couple of verses, Paul offers up evidence for why he, of all people, should have confidence before God in his own flesh. He provides three examples of how his heritage should give him confidence and three examples of how his actions should give him confidence. From birth, it would seem that Saul, not Paul, was destined for greatness in his culture, circumcised as a natural-born Israelite to the tribe of Benjamin and named after the first king of Israel. Throughout his life, he fully embraced his identity and became a leader among his people in the destruction of the enemies of God. As he saw, he knew he loved and he lived the law to the very best of his abilities, but he was wrong. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So we went through all this. Paul gives six important reasons for confidence that dictated his entire identity. Up until that point. And he dismisses it all with a single word. Whatever. Whatever it was. Whatever that was. Whatever gain I had. Gone. It's loss. Everything that he had built his life around. Everything that he had known about himself. And everything that he had believed in. Worthless. In fact, less than worthless. A loss. Not neutral. A negative. For the sake of Christ, All the gain he had, he now counts as loss. How can this be? How can the identity he spent his life believing in and constructing suddenly be worthless? Well, let's read on. Uh, Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is what allows Paul to declare that every gain he had in his prior life was a loss. Notice a key shift here. In Saul's life, he measured his value by his heritage and by his actions, but now he measures it in his knowledge of Christ. In knowing Christ. Here's our first takeaway. Our actions, our heritage, our very worldly identity cannot compare to what Christ offers us in knowing him. Now let's be clear. Christ is not asking us to throw away what we have for nothing as a show of devotion. Paul is not getting rid of something that he holds dear, and he did hold it dear in the face of Christ. Not for nothing. He describes his previous gain as rubbish, garbage. Now keep in mind, I didn't mention this, I think, in my overview, but keep in mind that Paul is currently in prison when he is saying this. He used to lead people you know, around the Middle East looking for Christians, you know, going from city to city. That's what he used to do, and now he is sitting in a prison, and he is saying, that was lost, this is gain. He still values what he has now in prison but in Christ, more than what he had before. Now, this is an important lesson to learn for all of us. God does not ask us to give up our treasures and even our identities in order for us to be miserable. Rather, God wants us to be able to live and live abundantly. And he knows that we cannot do that without him. And when we choose to hold on to our past and value it more than our relationship with him, we choose to live a lesser life. Paul parallels Christ's actions earlier in Philippians where he writes that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, as in chapter 2. He could have led a life of personal glory, receiving adulation from his people and his culture, but instead he chose to humble himself and renounce his authority as a Hebrew of Hebrews and as a leader and live a life of servitude in Christ. And like Christ, God has exalted him, Paul no longer is found amongst the rubbish of mortal glory, but is now found in Christ. I love that phrase. He is found in Christ, a place of eternal reward and a place he would never hope to reach on his own. All right. Let's see. Oh, nope, not verse 9 yet. Paul's righteousness is not based on his abilities nor his heritage anymore. Now his righteousness before God is defined by his faith in Christ, which is a much firmer foundation. We can also see here that there is no longer any point of comparison to make, which is what he could do before. Whereas before, Paul made the point that he could have more confidence than others because of his heritage and his actions, now there's only one level of confidence to be attained, full confidence in the righteousness of God through faith, not of works. And while we may not always feel that full confidence as Christians, It is certainly a comfort in difficult times that the security of our salvation is completely out of our fragile hands and is instead in our faith in God, in his hands. This is the great flaw in the Judaizer's point of view. To put any confidence in the flesh or in ourselves is to reduce confidence in Christ. Everything is counted as loss when compared to knowing Christ and if we hold on to anything as a source of righteousness, be it heritage, be it our intentions, be it our accomplishments, then we are saying that Christ is insufficient and therefore do not receive his righteousness. The Judaizers insisting that first one must enter into Jewish tradition in order to access Christ is profoundly incorrect because it sets the tradition up before Christ and in doing so, loses him completely. It can be tempting to set up our own goals, especially because we like to set easy goals. If I read the Bible every day, if I stop doing this one thing, or if I say the right prayer, or if I sing the right song, or if I do this, do that, whatever, if I go to church every week. But if we do this, then we are putting our confidence in our own flesh and in our actions, and we will therefore miss out on the real reward, knowing Christ and all the benefits that brings. Paul continues in verse 10. Uh, but I'm going to read verse 9 because we can continue through. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So now Paul has come full circle. He has replaced knowing, loving, and living the law with knowing, loving and living Christ. He knows him and the power of his resurrection. He loves him and shares in his sufferings. And he lives in his life in such a way by putting his confidence in Christ and not in his own actions as to attain the true life that awaits all those who have righteousness through God or in righteousness before God through faith. Paul is making two points in parallel in this passage. First, that knowing Christ is worth more than anything else. Second, that anything else can get in the way of knowing Christ. He shows this first by giving us what he himself originally considered to be the source of his righteousness, his heritage, and his actions. And how ultimately he cast all that gain aside, like trash, to lay a hold of Christ. Then he goes on to say that to know Christ is to attain his righteousness, And that righteousness is superior in every way to the righteousness he created for himself. If he did not suffer the loss of all these things, then he could never have gained true righteousness. If we add anything, anything at all, to Jesus as a source of righteousness, then we're missing it. We're missing the mark. Now there's also a third point in this passage, which We've just finished the passage. That's verse 11. There's also a third point here, and that is the application. After reading through all this and hearing the analysis of these verses, the next most logical question is, how? How do I do this? How do I value Christ above all things? How can I train myself to value Christ above all things? Because this is not an automatic process. This is not something that just happens in an instant. In fact, so some spoilers for maybe next week's sermon. Uh, it, later on in the chapter, Paul says, you know, he hasn't perfected this yet. He has not reached perfection yet. He is still, he is still striving ahead. But I don't want to talk too much about that because, you know, you've got to have a sermon next week. So it's not automatic. But how do, So how do we do this? How do we attain the mind of Paul here, which rejects worldly glory in favor of God's righteousness? Well, Let's take, a, let's take another look at the first verse in the passage. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So in some translations, I'm using the ESV. So it says, is safe for you. In some translations, it'll show it as it is a safeguard for you. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for these things. To rejoice in the Lord is is a safeguard for what follows here, which is the trap of worldly glory. Valuing Christ above all else becomes possible through regular rejoicing. It puts the focus on God instead of on ourselves. Rejoicing does not save us from hell. Let me make that clear. That's not what I'm saying here. Rejoicing does not save us from hell, but that is done by the righteousness of God through faith. But rejoicing does remind us of the truth that we already know that we are saved by his grace alone, not by our own successes or failures, and that Christ is worth it. That is what rejoicing does for us. That is how it acts as a safeguard, because it reminds us. And as we enjoy it, it turns into a feedback loop. We enjoy it more, we enjoy Christ more, we rejoice more, and we continue on. So how can we take Paul's advice and rejoice in the Lord? Well, there are many specific ways to do so. We could sing, we can pray, we can speak to others about the goodness of God. But ultimately, the rejoicing, whatever form it takes, you know, different things work for different people, but it must always remind us of the truth. It must always remind us of who God is. And that will strengthen our bond with Him and our new identity in Christ. The truth that He knows us, that Christ knows us, that Christ loves us, and that Christ lives for us. We can't go wrong by remembering and rejoicing in these things. So not only are we called to know, to love, to live, but Christ has already done that for us. He knows us, he loves us, and he lives for us. So, finally, my brothers and sisters, let us know that Christ is the source of our righteousness. Let us love Christ enough to shed our former identity. And let us live rejoicing in the Lord to strengthen our new identity and be always found in him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and for the access that you have given us to you. Help us always to remember that you are worth it, that you are worth so much more than we could ever get here on our own. Thank you for the, the loving sacrifice that you, you gave to us in, uh, in sacrificing your son. And help us to, to live that out and to show that to other people and to glory, uh, to, uh, to glory only in you and to honor you in everything that we do. In your name, amen.